This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today we've got a lot of news to cover about our Star Trek shows. We're going to have a big focus on Star Trek Discovery. But let's start things off in a broader sense uh, with some of the changes that Paramount Plus has made and is making on their platform. So we joked a around a lot when Paramount Plus was launched in that, you know, they launched with some new content, but mostly they just changed the name of CBS All Access. Um, <laughs> that was in March and they spent a ton of money on an advertising campaign and Super Bowl ads. But there is now more stuff happening on the app side and the content side. And there's also a new $5 ad supported tier that they just launched this week called the Essential Plan. It's basically like the $6 one used to be, except you don't get your local affiliate, but you still get live sports, which is a pretty big deal. The biggest thing is they're starting to add a lot of movies. This week, they're adding a thousand new movies to the platform. And they're hoping and, to be up to 2,500 by the end of the summer. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a lot of a movies. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's better than most of the other, you know, I'm not sure how many are in, in Netflix now. They've probably got more, but uh, I, I'm, I'm sure it's more than Peacock, probably more than HBO Max, probably more than Disney Plus. So it's a big differentiator. Um, and these include recent movies, a lot of Paramount stuff, the latest Terminator movie, Skyfall, which I know is a James Bond movie. That's from MGM, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. You know, there's a lot of good stuff. Tropic Thunder. I love that movie that's coming. And Star Trek Beyond is going to be in there. Yay. We don't we don't know if all 13 Star Trek movies are going to be in there. Yeah, they just have a couple in there now, right? I yeah, there's like this... I mean as if you've followed streaming how streaming handles movies, not Star Trek movies like all movies. Every month you always see these articles what's coming and going to Netflix and Hulu this month cuz the the way movie rights is is very different than the way it, people handle television shows usually in that they're, they're sold in these short windows. And so they come and go from these streaming platforms all the time. That's changing though, where we've now seen Disney and um, HBO Max is trying to do this as well with some of their stuff, trying to pull back all their stuff. I know that like one of the reasons why you're seeing Skyfall, which is an MGM movie coming to the thing is they made a deal with MGM to claw back some of the, Star Trek and other content that they sold to MGM for on epics. So this is, in, this is very inside baseball stuff. Um, but uh, they are trying to bring stuff back. I think they're going to try to get all 13 Star Trek movies, all the, you know, and all the mission impossible movies and all their big franchises into the system. I don't know if that's going to happen by this summer or not, but I think that's kind of where they're going. And there's certainly a lot of movies now, with all this content, one of the things they're finally doing, finally, I know this isn't a, I know this isn't a big deal to you, but to me, this is so huge. Is no. they're finally, finally yeah, adding a my list function? To me, it's like it's like selling a car without a turn signal. Like it's it's not necessary, but it's it's very important. <laughs> I get it. I think it's it's a it's not a feature that I use, but it's definitely a feature that lots and lots of people use. We'll probably have more on this later when they finally add some of these new features. Maybe we'll give our feedback. Um, but it's it's good news. 
um, following our mockery of the <laughs> original re- relaunch, which is really a repainting. Speaking of Star Trek movies and high definition, one thing that uh, a lot of fans have been waiting for is the release of the Star Trek movies remastered in 4K HDR um, on Blu-ray. And Paramount has been going through a lot of their catalog, um, releasing a lot of their movies. They haven't done this for Star Trek, but there's been a lot of rumors that they are doing it. And then our friends over at Digital Bits noticed that a French site listed the first four Star Trek movies available remastered in 4K. And then... After inquiries were made to Paramount, they were removed. <laughs> so that's a familiar kind of... story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and and it was it was September, which of course makes sense because it's both the Christmas season and it's also you know Star Trek's birthday. So I would not be surprised if that happens again. You know, remastering things in 4K. We know that it's been done. We know that a lot of this work has been done. Um. And it's future-proofing, obviously, the franchise. So, you know, hopefully we'll have news on that in the future, but we don't have anything definitive right now. But Looking good. We have a little bit more of sort of distribution news, which is that if you are in Canada, um, you will be getting Star Trek Strange New Worlds and Prodigy on CTV. Well, not CTV, CTV. CTV Sci-Fi, which is Right, CTV Sci-Fi. You're the Canadian. You should know this stuff. I know, but I moved before CTV Sci-Fi existed. It was just CTV, which was a big deal. Um, so I was like, oh, CTV, that's great. But CTV Sci-Fi. It's the only place in the world, actually, that it's kind of the Star Trek shows are kind of on TV, as it were. Right. Um, and uh, But they are only on this you know, one cable channel, which has tons of great sci-fi stuff. And it, and it does have, like paramount plus all the new shows so it's kind of no it's like no surprise because they've got prodigy they've got discovery they got lower decks they'll have lower decks on august 12th um there is a streaming home in canada which is owned by the same company called crave and so that will probably and they have all the stuff the next day and so good news for the canadians we but we don't know yet is where prodigy and lower decks will arrive everywhere else in the world. So if you're in Germany or the UK or Australia, it's still unclear. And if you remember when Lower Decks came out last year, there was that whole waiting period where we didn't know, where the Americans and the Canadians were watching a show and, and everyone else was like, they, they not only couldn't watch it, they didn't even know when they could watch it. Right, and they so they couldn't go on Twitter. They couldn't, you know, it's like all these, everybody's talking about these shows that they can't even see. That was bad because with Picard and with Discovery, so Discovery was on Netflix, Picard is on Amazon. Um, both were still on like day after. Lower Decks eventually showed up in Amazon, but it was after the season had wrapped in the US. So hopefully they, a lot of the reasons for that is Lower Decks ended up coming out before Discovery was, you know, they moved the schedule around. Hopefully they, figure this out by 2022 and so there will be a streaming home i would not be surprised though going back to paramount plus that because 2021 and 2022 and 2023 is they're really moving paramount plus elsewhere in the world i think 
certain markets, I would not be surprised, Latin America, the Nordic countries, Australia, that they, that Paramount Plus will be also be the home of Strange New Worlds and Prodigy. I'm just speculating here. I think eventually, as new Star Trek shows come out, they're going to carry their own shows on their own international platforms, is a guess. And it would be nice if they're all out at the same time to unite the world and its love of Star Trek. That would be nice. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I could hear it now. I could hear all the way from Australia, people screaming, I don't want to pay for Netflix, Amazon, and Paramount+. Plus. And all I have to say is you don't have to subscribe every month to all of right. these things. Right. You can go from one to the next, which is what I do with a lot of these. Because there's so many shows I like on so many platforms. The idea of subscribing to 10 at the same time, I think, is dumb. It's not that hard to cancel, is all I have to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, set, put a reminder in your calendar. That's what I do for stuff. Exactly. What's next? Lower Decks. We had a lot of news last week, Lower Decks, because uh, there were all these interviews. But uh, we got some news this week, which is they're already in production on season three, which is which is the recording part of the show, um, as opposed to just the writing. We knew writing was underway, but uh, they are they're cranking it of, out, yeah, yeah, because they started they started voice production on season two last. October, I think it was. I mean, so they are really, COVID did not slow these guys down. And in fact, they're now recording back in the booth again. They're not even doing the remote thing anymore. This show will be, season three will be ready, I'm guessing, because they did season one in August 2020, season two, August 2021. I mean, there's no reason why season three couldn't be August 2022. My bet is it'll be ready sooner. But they may not want to go sooner because they've got to get through the season four of Discovery, which will start this year, but flow into next year, almost certainly. Then you've got Strange New Worlds and Picard, which I I always thought would be come before season three of Lower Decks. But I don't know. Maybe they'll mix that up. What do you think? Well, I think it's smart of like they're going to have it ready, which gives them flexibility in their schedule. So if they feel like the other shows are ready and they want to launch them first, they can. But then they have this, you know, it's always good to have something in your back pocket. So if they needed right. to launch it sooner, they could. I think it makes sense to do it at this. I mean, the idea of August, 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 smart. It's good. Yeah, I kind of like that. It's almost old school. Yeah. Um, the, I like the old school seasons. Yeah, I mean, we knew they'd run into this. I mean, they're literally in production on five Star Trek shows now. So next year they're going to have to make some choices and it, they will not be releasing things as they're done. They're going to be releasing things to spread them out. And of course there's a lot of other content coming to Paramount plus. So next year is just going to be a good year for TV all around the world. Cause everyone's finally back in production, but there's, it's like this weird thing where every show's back in production and now they've got to decide how to spread it out again. Well, their original plan from a long time ago, they've always talked about year-round Star Trek, which definitely makes sense for Paramount Plus to have year-round Star Trek, because then you don't have the people who are only subscribing just to binge something and then leave. If there's year-round Star Trek, people are going to put that in their in their budgetary plans. And I, I love that idea. I mean, it'll keep us busy, for sure. 
so the reason why we know recording started because Tawny Newsom shared a picture of herself in the recording booth saying season three. And then she seemed very happy when you took the image of Mariner and put it right next to it for our picture. And then she put that in her Instagram story. Yeah. She thanked us for yeah. putting them together. Just a little quick Photoshop. Uh, I'm glad she liked it. But as noted in our article, she's alone in the booth. So we talked last week about how Jack Quaid said that in season, when they were recording season two, he couldn't do it live with her like he did in season one. And that, you know, didn't have, you know, the same chemistry. And I'm guessing, and you follow this closer than I am, but I think he's literally in Toronto. So he just, he, there's no way that he could do it. He's in Toronto for the boys and you can't go back and forth because of the quarantine rules, which I believe are very close to lifting. Yeah. I think and we're we going to get in, into that a little later because yeah. that's more a discovery conversation. I'm counting the days. Let me tell you. I, I know it was important for those two because they have so many scenes together and they are kind of the stars of the show because mostly in animated shows, they, everyone records on their own. You know, when you read the old making of books and you t- uh, like Leonard Nimoy talked about how some guy would come to a play he was yeah. doing in New York yeah. and they'd re- record him in a bathroom for the original series or the animated series. Sorry, you know, so that's what's happening on Lower Deck. So we're still waiting for I guess, I'm guessing we'll get another trailer and some more stuff between now and August, though. Right. Oh, yeah. Maybe Comic-Con, the virtual Comic-Con. What's next? Let's move on to Star Trek Picard. We're, we're going to do something where we're going to talk a lot about something very small <laughs> and almost <laughs> almost inconsequential. But fun. I think it's fun. So, and this all started on our Slack and uh, where Brian shared a tweet from Mark Bernardin, who is one of the Star Trek Picard writers. And you may know him from his podcast with... Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith. Yep. Fat Fat Man Beyond. He has his own podcast. He's a super nerdy guy. I think he did a whole podcast just on Battlestar Galactica. Um, so, you know, mega nerd, but also longtime Hollywood writer. I think his first job was on DS9, right? He was an intern on Deep Space Nine. And where I, I, I on one of his old podcasts, he mentioned his only claim to fame, which is a bit more infamy than fame, is He's the one who came up with the Alan Moraine song. So. Yay! I actually <laughs> love that episode. Oh my god, you're like the only one. I am uh, the only one. I love it. And I love the little rhyme. So A plus for him. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so he's a writer and supervising producer. This week, he just sent out this tweet saying, New favorite phrase, which I encountered in the writer's room for the first time today... And the phrase is, and there it's a mad dash for the logo. That's the phrase. And from there. And from there, it's a mad dash for the logo. And then a bunch of other writers started chiming in on this because they all follow each other, of course. And apparently this this phrase originated in the Star Trek writers room because you see some Star Trek writers chiming in, um, including Robert Hewitt Wolf and others. Um, And Mark eventually revealed, and this is kind of the little thing is he heard the phrase from someone in the writer's room who's a Star Trek The Next Generation veteran, which means that they've added someone, a TNG writer, to the writer's room for Picard season three, 
or two, sorry, and three. They're probably they're actually we assume they're finished writing season two. They're shooting season two now. They're finished season two. Um, uh, John Delancey, our favorite Kaliker, says that they're going to shoot season two and three back to back. So they're writing season three, and he said. Uh, the fella who said it to me is a next gen veteran. So now we're all wondering which, who is this person who's in that writer's room who comes from next generation, who's a dude because he said fella, which barely narrows it down, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes. Gladly. So it's, it's, it's not Melinda Snodgrass who has right. written a whole blog post about this term. So it's apparently a kind of the whole, just getting back to the term, you're a writer. I mean, what I gather is as you're kind of breaking down the story, this is kind of, talking about how you're going to ramp things up at the end of an episode. Yeah. Well, it's like, you're, it's like, it's like the home stretch. Like here's the last thing we have to do and then we'll do this and take us out. I think the example they gave was a star Wars example of like making that final run at the death star. So the over reading of this is, this is another example of how they're leaning more into the next generation. Because if you, if you think about the history of Alex Kurtzman and then bringing in, veteran star trek writers they, they've had not the best luck with that right so well they've um, also made some quirky choices right i mean bringing in nick meyer it's like they should have known what they were getting i mean nick meyer is brilliant but he's not a writer's room guy he's um, not a and, collaborator in that sense and an every week guy probably kind of sense yeah, and i especially think he, now in, in the age he's in he's a sit at his home crank something out, reading books, thinking about, you know, obscure French painters guy. He's not a sit in the room, you know, sniffing markers, throwing ideas out guy. And it was always a bad fit. And that's why it didn't work out. He's he's the guy who's going to have his own ideas and he's not going to be interested in distilling them and mixing them in with everybody else's. Who else? What other? Uh... Joe Minoski was the other one. He was on Discovery yeah. for a while. And like the guy is brilliant. And but he's also like very, I'll say like individualistic and quirky in his own way. Which right. was very much appreciated. Like when you hear the, you know, the old time Star Trek writers talking about him, they all love him. And yeah. so they came up with great ideas. But again, that's sort of not really the way things are being written now because it's all it's all individual it's all serialized so it's not individual you can't come in and go i have this crazy idea because it's still got to fit into the larger story although he did move on to the orville i guess that was a good fit for him and then now he's with ron moore over at for all mankind oh well that's pretty serialized you know if you do a google search for this term you'll see a lot of Star Trek writers will like, use it in interviews and stuff. So Ron, you know, Ron Moore and Melissa Snodgrass and others. But apparently it started um, with a guy who's passed away. Weirdly, it started with the guy who was only with the show for like half a year or something back in season two of TNG. Um, and then it was used by some others you know who popularized it and now people like ron and ira and others and it's just kind of this thing that they all say noreen shankar um but it's not going to be any of those guys like ron's got his own show you know it's ron's got a huge deal he's got more than his own show he's yeah disney's showering him with money yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. Uh, noreen shankar's doing the expanse it's not robert hewitt wolf so it could be just one of those guys that you don't know um, one of the names thrown out there, you know, like, I'm not sure how many people 
know this name, but Richard Manning, who chimed in on the thread and he said he actually learned it from another guy. But, you know, you don't know his name, but he wrote, <laughs> you know, he, he wrote a few episodes of The Next Generation and was in the writer's room. Um, and so it could be one of these kind of second tier guys, probably more writer's room guy, not a... Um, not a sell a script or a story guy. I'm excited to find out who it is because that will be, and it'll be interesting to see how that manifests in terms of uh, the upcoming seasons of Picard. I don't think it is, but it would be great if it was Ira. I know Ira said oh. last year he was working on something he couldn't talk about. Ira Stephen Bear, you know, he, he himself is someone that, you know, can have a personality clash. I mean, you know, you hear the stories of him just telling Rick, you know, I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. And you can fire me if you don't want me. You know, I just don't see that playing well with the new world order. But he's also done lots of episodic TV. No, no, he's, yeah, he's, he's yeah. very professional. But the question is, is he, would he fit with this group? I don't know. I hope that they could find a way. But tonally and story wise, he's a great fit. Like if you just looked at the content, the way the show is, the tone of the show and the things that he likes to do, that feels like a really good fit. Right. They're doing probably. Yeah, there's no idea where he's going to get the feedback of we don't do that in Star Trek, you know, or that's you know, too dark or that's too risky. I don't think that would happen. No, no, he'd be great. That's why I'm holding out hope for him. And, you yeah. know, so hopefully he can fit into this group. Um, but it could just be someone that, you know, you'd have to look up on memory alpha to figure out who it is. But more importantly than who it is, is the fact that they've done this, that they're going back to the well, bringing in a next generation writer. Because obviously, I think they're looking at season one and thinking what worked. And when they leaned into next gen things, that's what worked well. And I think that they're going to be doing that more. I mean, we know that last week there was a day on the set. It was, you know, Jonathan Frakes directing, Patrick Stewart, Brent Spiner, John Delancey. I mean, you know, it's they're doing it. I mean, it isn't the next next generation, but they are definitely not shying away from the next generation and bringing in a writer. You know, you know, for all we know, that guy wrote that episode, you know, and it's just it's like getting the band back together again, you know, which is interesting when you think about how Gates McFadden is still knocking on the door. like, hey, let me in. I know. Um, I was just thinking about that scene in the first season where David Pamer is the doctor is Picard's longtime doctor who's talking about, you know, his syndrome. And I was like, that just should have been Crusher. It could have been, but it would have been a whole different. You could. The, you know, obviously they would have just totally rewrote that episode because that would have been a whole emotional. I know. I just it, want her in he there. Was, he was, he was just there to say you're dying. And so you can't have Beverly do that because Beverly's so much more. Exactly. And Pamer was perfect for that. Cause he's kind of the kind of guy, you know, so he's in everything for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you never see him again. Because he's dying. And now he'll never see it because he's an android. That's a good question, though. Like, can he get sick? Can he get a cold? Can they, you know, and I, I assume now all his, you know, that's why he needs Brent Spiner as Dr. Soon to, you know, give him tune-ups, I guess, right? How I human is he, though, you know, on the inside? Does he, you know, can he get indigestion? 
We, you know, these are very important questions. Does he still fart? (laughs) These are important questions. (laughs) That is the most important question of all. Yes. Yes. What are the bodily functions of an android? Because I think, you know, if they are fully functional, they're fully functional. And that's the good stuff and the bad stuff. Yeah, there's a whole path. I don't think we should go down for this, but you know. Okay. (laughs) So that's all we got on Picard. It's a tiny thing, but... So now let's kind of run through a few things for Star Trek Discovery, a lot of which comes from the fact that we are now in any four-year consideration season, which means they're doing all these virtual panels, all aimed at members of the Television Academy, focused on season three. This is all about getting their awards, basically. I mean, there was one where Sonequa Martin-Green just basically was clearly trying to cram in every name of behind the scenes people that she works with because she knows that it's Emmy voters watching. So she just kept, and then this department and this department under this person, I just thought that was very gracious and thoughtful of her. She clearly had an agenda, which was to get as many people nominated as possible. Oh, and then there was one other panel because it's pride month. Uh, They did a special panel with an LGBTQ organization called Outfest. And they, they did a whole panel with all of the LGBTQ plus members of the cast and Michelle Paradise. Let's start with that because it's Pride Month. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Yes. And, you know, and and inclusivity has been a big part of the show. And they talked, that was the whole point of the panel. You know, Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz talked about how they, you know, love being the first openly gay couple on a Star Trek TV series. The news that came out of this panel is... Uh, talk more about Adira in season Adira and Gray in season four. So they're back. They were introduced in season three. So for season four, something that Michelle Paradise said is hugely important was this idea of Gray being truly seen because Gray was the ghost boyfriend and which we kind of made fun of all season three. It got a little <laughs> old. So although I like, you know, that they, I, I think they've drawn this out too much. They should have oh. done it in season three and they kind of did it because they were in the weird holodeck where Grey became a Vulcan and could be seen, but to be truly seen, meaning everyone can see Grey and, you know, I don't know what reason uh, Blue DeBario said something about Adira's love for Grey is so strong that they are able to save him. Which sounds like the way, you know, people used to tell their kids how babies were made. (laughs) When two people love each other enough, they make a baby. End of description. So, I mean, that's not really enough. They are rewriting the rules on how the trill work, but I guess it's okay because they are human. Adira is a human and maybe for whatever reason, the symbiont is working in a strange way because they are unique in being able to accept a trill host anyway, but getting gray out of ghost functionality is important. And actually rap and um, Wilson Cruz talked about how it's, it's more than that. The four of them. So are forming a, what they're calling a chosen family, right? So you've got Adira and gray and Culber and Stamets as dads um, to these two young people even though they're not children children they're both very young yeah they're supposed to be 16 or something yeah both actors are like 19 or something yeah 
And and when you watch the panel, you can see that this is an on-screen, off-screen situation where, you know, Cruz and Rap are both, you know, veteran actors and been around for a long time and are really acting as mentors to these two young actors. And it's also, so it's being reflected on and off the show. And you can really feel the love, you know, I know that's cliche, but when you watch these panels and you see these four together, you know, they really do feel like a family. Yeah, it's sweet. So, but that's kind of going to be a thing in season four is this family thing this this group and you know of course these are teenagers so they should all be rebelling and you know angry and throwing things around and you know so hopefully it's not all lovey-dovey you know hopefully this is like a real family because real families i hadn't noticed mine is perfect (laughs) (laughs) do you have anything more to say about that well i think i want to talk about that coming out scene for a moment the adira coming out scene just because I see this discussed a lot. And so I think, you know, they talked about how Blue basically loved that scene. And we've talked before about how that was sort of what was happening in Blue's life as well as Adira's life. And so the the sort of criticism that I've seen a lot is that um, it shouldn't be a th- in the future. It's not a thing. Like we didn't have that whole moment where we had to say, you know, Paul is a man and Hugh is a man and they're married like we or whatever. They're together. But I. I think that in this case, what they were trying, I think they're trying to do two things. And one thing is to say that for each person, the parts of yourself that you choose to share with other people, it's your own decision that you have to do on your own terms. And that's why, and it was something that Adira was figuring out for themselves. And at the moment of figuring it out, then said it. And I also think you have to take into account that yes, the show takes place in the future, but it's being watched now. This is a particularly We've made so much progress, but it's also a very challenging time for, let's say, non-binary people, trans people. There's a lot of stuff going on in the country, let's say, right now. And so I think for younger people, and we know that the Discovery audience is younger, to see this moment of Adira saying, I'd like to be called they, that's who I feel like I am, and everybody just going, okay, and then it's done, is actually very important. I thought it was... Blue didn't use the phrase headcanon, but they talked about how in their mind, in the future, everyone does this, which I'm not, I'm not sure Michelle Paradise and others endorsed necessarily, (laughs) but their perspective was in the future, there is no kind of generic. So it's not assumed you're straight and everyone eventually tells people, by the way, I'm this. No, this is how I identify. This is, you know, my sexuality, my gender. They did talk about how that scene was just, that was it. It was like, this is what it is and it'll never be talked about again. And it was no big deal. It was just, it's that kind of thing. It's kind of just part of life and people do it all the time, apparently in their mind. And that's why it's important. I do think that's why it's important. I mean, I I have teenagers and so, and they have a lot of friends. They have friends who are transgender and friends going through different stages and phases. And it is unusual for them to see, especially in a show like Star Trek. I mean, I don't think any of them are watching it, Um, but (laughs) my 13 year old's friends aren't watching it, but it is, it's, it's this approval and this acknowledgement 
And that's why, you know, that language of you will be seen is obviously meant to hit on multiple levels. And I will, I will forgive them being heavy handed with that because the message is so important. And, and bottom line, I think it saves lives. I think we get teens who are very alone. Well, we got a few other things from that Outfest panel, which is um, Tignataro was talking about <laughs> cramming all her shooting into two weeks. Well, first of all, she was obviously still in quarantine when she did that panel because she said, I haven't started shooting yet. So I and there's a two week wait before you can go do anything once you arrive. So I'm guessing that was when they when they recorded that and then. Made a, she made a lot of jokes about like cramming all the filming into two weeks and going through all these directors. So it sounds like they are just trying to do all of her scenes so that she can get back out. Because they wanted her earlier in the season and she said, I'm not going to Canada in um, December last year. And we didn't have vaccines yet. I mean, the world was pretty different. Yeah. And there was a COVID spike. She's a cancer survivor. She's like, I'm not flying to Canada. No way. So um, at the time we speculated that maybe she would do this thing where they try to, they don't write her out of those episodes. They do when she said I'll go once in May, which is what she did. And she's there now shooting. And I think that's what they're doing. They are going to do inserts i think she's going to be in scenes with people for 100 percent anthony rapp talked about her being in a scene with her this week but i think they're also shooting some pickup scenes yeah where you know you know my bet is you're going to get a scene where captain burnham calls down to engineering because she's apparently you know if we finally see engineering or you know it says you know you know <laughs> i i need warp five or we're all dead you know and there's you know now now they can shoot tig saying i can't you know i, I cannot push she's... the engines anymore yeah <laughs> yeah something a little <laughs> but something more acerbic and funny right because i'm hoping they do it this way because we don't want tig you know we don't want jet reno who's supposed to be the chief engineer to just show up at the end of the season. It'd be weird. You know, it'd be yet another season where, and I hope they finally make Culber chief medical officer. They've, you know, Michael's the captain. Let's just, you know, let's stop pretending that there aren't department heads. Yeah. Here's another thing is that Anthony Rapp said he's a commander. Now he like, let it slip. And then said, Oh, is that a spoiler? Um, So it seems like he's now the head of science, which makes sense. Because Michael yeah. is now, was the head of science. She's now captain. We still don't know what the deal is with Doug. Because Doug starts on Kaminar, ends up on the ship. He has a special pin now, but he's a captain. So, you know, there's something going on with him. We don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. And he's not going to be first officer because Tilly's first officer. She also got a promotion, but it's to lieutenant, I think. And actually, in another panel, Anthony talked about just giving an example of what life's like. He said he... He spent an entire day just doing all sciencey things. So we talked a lot about this family element and all that, but that's not what his character's all about in season four. And my bet is he's kind of in charge of dealing with whatever this thing is. The season four bad guy isn't an uninspiring Orion. It is some some kind of gravitational anomaly, right? It's it is a it's a science bad guy and he's i think that's going to be his thing for the season right we see him briefing people on it in the trailer right so i think his arc for the season is beating 
the gravitational anomaly that's destroying the galaxy. And hopefully also dealing with his resentment of Michael, which I'll be interested in following up on. But yes, there's a... There'll be character stories there, yeah. but yeah, I, I wouldn't mind seeing more of the acerbic Stamets. Same. He shouldn't be all lovey-dovey. He came out of the mycelial coma a nicer, but sometimes I think a little too nice. Yeah. No, I agree. There's just tiny bits of season four we're picking up from these various panels. So Michelle Paradise confirmed they've written the finale. They are, they've picture locked a few episodes already. But it's kind of funny when she talked about delivering in 2021. She said, well, that's what the trailer said, so we're <laughs> going to do it. Like, Not like she was happy about it. You know? Everybody so, but, seems shocked that they're supposed to premiere in 2021. Especially because Prodigy and Lower Decks are coming this year, starting, you know, in August. So they're, they're, they are cramming three Star Trek shows into five months. But that's um, not why they're surprised. Like when she, when, when Mary and Noah say it and when, and when she says it, it's because they're probably thinking about when they're going to get things done. And they're quite surprised that they're going to be able to deliver stuff in time for December, but they'll do it. Interestingly, she said that they're sticking with the COVID protocols and they will all through their season, even if Toronto, you know, opens up entirely. Which is not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, even if they change it so that it's easier to cross the border, which I just every day I'm looking for news on that because I'm desperate to go see my family. It'll still, they'll still have very strict protocols. Like they are opening things up more than they had been. But, you know, all my Toronto family and friends have not had haircuts for a very long time. <laughs> now, one benefit is that scripts were, are written well in advance and Anthony Rapp in one of these things talked about how it's great that they're getting scripts weeks at a time. And he did, you know, make a note about how sometimes in season one, they would, you know, get them at the last minute. Um, and we've talked about, you know, obviously season one was the year of chaos and <laughs> there's definitely plenty of time between finishing the episode scripts and production for all of these shows this year really because the writers had so much time to work on their own but anthony said that that's really been helpful for him especially because of again getting back to all the sciencey stuff he's got to deal with um on the show yeah that's that's a whole other level of memorization and learning to say it with conviction i mean anyone can rattle off lines but to actually make it sound like you know, i mean i always think of Kate Mulgrew always talked about how she made herself understand what she was saying at some level so that she could deliver it in a more convincing way. It's hard to do. You know, we talked about you know, the science consultant, you know, has, I think, got more involved in the show. I think season four from things that we've heard before, and I think science is going to be a really big part of season four. I think they're going to try to lean more into this whole Star Trek science thing. It is something that they feel is important to Discovery, and I think they want to lean more into that, and having a anomaly as the big bad for the season, I think, allows them to get a little nerdier when it comes to some of this stuff. Yeah, I I think so. I just, I, I would like them to have a villain that isn't threatening the entire galaxy every single season, 
but well, if that's Michael Burnham British. doesn't doesn't save the galaxy Everybody. once a year, you know she, <sighs> you know her her life just ceases to exist. Right. You know. Total side note: I I already finished Wonderlands, the new book, and it's just highly recommended to everyone. And it does give you some insights into what the Federation is like in this post-burn world, where it's almost a it is just kind of a myth, you know, and because season four is going to be them warping to places with buckets of dilithium, spreading good cheer, but it'll, you know, they're going to be showing up places and people are like, Hey, where have you been? And there's a lot of, a lot of people don't like the Federation. Um, Cause it, the book gets into this whole thing, which I assume is coming from the writers, which is between the temple wars and the burn, there was this, period where they were pushing the federation was pushing too far stretching too thin a lot of worlds on the outside were being ignored and there were problems in the federation in in the period between the temple wars and there were worlds that kind of got caught up in the temple wars and the federation never showed up to help them and so there's 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 anti-federation resentment from even before the burn that is now going to be over a century old. And so there's some resentment out there. So there's kind of, there's a, yeah, there's true believers who look at the Federation fondly in the past. And then there's this camp of people who are like, we don't want anything to do with you. And I think we're going to get a lot of that in season four, where they're going to show up and to some people be these mythologized figures coming to finally save them. And to others, they'll be, we don't trust you because the Federation abandoned us. Right. I need to read that book. I have it on hold at my library. I just have to walk over and pick it up, actually. What else? Mary talks a bit about how Mary Wiseman, about how Tilly, you know, even though she's gone through all the stuff, she's not losing her optimism and she, you know, never will, even though she has all these extra responsibilities. I, I think that they've made her less silly, but she does. She is kind of that spark of hope on the ship. She is that constant little source of optimism and i i hope they never lose that right yeah i agree we don't no, want I, to see I, dark dark tilly we don't want to see brooding tilly you know that's we got plenty of that going on yeah no i mean I, she can be dejected about things momentarily but i love that character and i hope that they well it sounds like they feel the same way they're going to keep that sort of unique side of her i'm not sure about this whole first officer thing but we'll see how that goes I still think they should bring in someone, new character from Starfleet, modern day Starfleet, the 32nd century Starfleet to come in and, you know, be a, the first officer and kind of their bridge between. Yeah. Well, it would create some very interesting character dynamics. I know it's a big cast, but I think that that would help. And I don't think anyone among the existing characters is right for first officer at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They're like, well, we need to do these things, and so we need someone to be first officer. I feel like they painted themselves into a corner, and Tilly yeah. was an interesting choice, but I, I still don't think it makes sense. And I didn't think it made – look, I I love that character. And I did love the moment when, they're, when they all were like, take the job, which <laughs> I thought was sweet and nice, and I enjoyed the scene. But it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense for her to be the first officer. Unfortunately, Michelle Paradise, who's done a lot of these panels, she is just so phobic of spoilers. So she says a lot of things about season four and yet says nothing at all. You know what I mean? 
At one point, I think she joked that she was going to have to fire herself. She talks about how all the characters are growing and they're all facing their, there's like a big challenge, but then they all have little individual character arc challenges as well. Which is not like anything different from any show. (laughs) But they're still heavily, heavily serialized. And so we're going to see big arc and mini arcs and character arcs. And Alex has talked, Alex talks a bit more. He did the one panel. He talks about how every, every episode they do, they're testing Michael as a captain. Cause this, that's the big new thing. So every episode is a test of her as a captain and she's going to falter at times and doubt herself and, you know, eventually triumph obviously, but uh, she's not going to just walk into the job and be perfect at it. She's not, you know, cap, you know, Kirk, was just perfect from day one, right? You know, when you look at him, even in the second pilot, when his first appears, you know, he's 100% in command. I hope that they give Michael an arc here more and she screws up now and then and isn't, you know, Mrs. Perfect Captain. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's interesting for the character, but my I like my captains to be perfect i just do (laughs) i'm sorry i'm thinking about all the captains and and i think that your crew needs to be to fully believe this captain you have to believe it that this captain knows the right thing will do the right thing i mean picard even talked about how he pretends he knows the right thing even when he doesn't because that's what's important so that's great for character discovery not so great if it's your captain but we'll see. I do. I love the character of Michael. So I'm very invested in her own journey. But I I think, whoa, I don't know if I want to be the new captain making mistakes, figuring stuff out. Just <laughs> sounds a little dodgy. I don't want new Captain Harriman. Okay. For our Star Trek <laughs> generations. I don't want some hapless, like, what do I do? You know, I'm just saying, give her an arc, you know, and, te- and test her and... You know, I think what we'll see is more her, her having that thing, or maybe she's later with books saying, I've been faking it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I feel like I'm making mistakes, but it's not so overtly where she calls for yellow alert when she should be calling for red alert. Well, I didn't think it was that. (laughs) (laughs) I did, wasn't thinking that. But yeah, as, 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 if all that stuff plays out separately, that's fine. But don't let your crew see that happening. I mean, that could be interesting now that I'm thinking with her and Tilly having those conversations, because I love those two together. Now, there's some like totally not season four stuff that I found interesting in a lot of these panels, because they talk about a lot about season three, but they also talk about earlier seasons. You know, one thing Michelle Paradise said is they did look into, they always knew they were going to jump forward in time in season two, at the end of season two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but... They originally thought it was going to be less time, right? And it you know it took a while to get around to this you know thirty second century, and it it came down to the clean sheet of paper because I think they kept on. I suspect they kept on saying, "Oh, what about the twenty sixth century?" And said, someone's like, "Well, there was this episode of Voyager, yeah. that, you know, <laughs> you know." And then what about this? Episode? Well, there's this thing called the Living Witness, and then there's this one where the yeah, there's a lot of future stuff. Yeah, so I think they were 
forced into the 32nd century because it is a ridiculous amount of time, you know, and it <laughs> and it does force you into resetting technology again because at this point technology should just be magical and everyone should be like floating balls of energy and perfect, right? They kind of are where they are because Star Trek is what it is. And they just didn't want to have to deal with the USS relativity and all the other kind of stuff that all those years of Star Trek, you know, because someone might think, oh, well, the next generation was in the 24th century. Let's just do the 25th century. Yeah, no, can't do it. They could have done 25th, 26th, you know, but yeah. And I think a lot of people would like to see that, but they obviously just didn't want to do it. They're like, no. We don't want any, you know, we don't want to run to any, there was an episode of Voyager that said this thing and no, you know, we are beyond all that stuff. Well, they want to free the, and it frees them, them up from criticism about the look, the uniforms, the ships, the this, the that. It just right. gives them more creative freedom on all fronts. Glenn Hetrick, um, who's the makeup guy, huge Star Trek nerd, by the way, you know, just hardcore. What was funny is he was talking about how everyone hated the the bald Klingons. And he said, look, I get that. He said, I hated the next-gen Klingons. Like, that's how old school he was. He's like, because they weren't original series Klingons. He said, even though it was in the movies, he's, you know, so he he gets it, right? And apparently one of the things he even tried to do in season one was have, um, because it was coming from Brian Fuller. I mean, he didn't say this, but, you know, we know that from previous interviews that Brian wanted the bald Klingons. Um, he wanted to add like leather dreadlocks, like it was something that they wear that looked like hair, just to get something into season one. But that didn't play out. Um, <laughs> but apparently, he's the one who came up with the whole weird story. Remember in season two, it's like, well, we we aren't bald; we shaved our head because it was a time of war, and it was all related to that episode with Kalis in it. Yeah, Remember where, yeah, yeah. He's the one who came up with that. So that you know, he's not a writer, you know, but he he went back, you know, and watched, and he pitched this idea of, okay, I, I could now give us a reason to bring back hair and have it not be stupid, even though it's stupid. And I think that's great, but that shows you kind of the deep love of Star Trek, of Glenn, who's uh, Emmy winner for the show. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think so too. Even though we still haven't seen a Klingon on Picard or in the 32nd century. Right. So it's like, they are very, they just kind of don't want to deal with the Klingons anymore, but the Klingons have got to show up on strange new worlds. Right. Of course. You know, we don't want strange new worlds to be just like the original series. We've said, we don't want the Gorn to show up, as a, but you got to run into the Klingons because they're the Klingons, you know, they're just, they're the Russians and we're the Americans and it's the cold war. They're out there. I assume, you know, I'm curious is what will they look like? I assume they're just going to go with season two Discovery Klingons. They, ha- so they kind of gonna... have to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, because some people say, no, we want, we want the old way. We want just guys in dark makeup and, you know, and Van Dyke beards. That's not um, going to happen. <laughs> I think it would be hilarious if they did that. I think I kind of want them to do it, but I, I think they're, you know, but it's probably better if they don't. Yeah, um, I think I feel the same way. I kind of want them to do it, <laughs> but it's better if they don't. Well, they, I mean, this brings up another thing he brought up, which totally surprised me, um, which was he was talking about Orions, right? And in season three, he said, 
you look at you know what they did in the original, so they just painted people green, right? You just take a person, which is what they did with the Klingons. They just gave them dark makeup, right? But he said, that just doesn't work in HD. You can't just paint someone. And so with the Orions, they weren't just humans painted green. They had silicon appliances, all of them. Which is, which is why they, they look so weird. Yeah, exactly. So that's the problem is they all had this kind of uncanny valley situation going on because they were so close to human. But apparently you just, if you just spray someone green, it just looks bad. Doesn't it remind, and, like, there are also those early stories when they were doing the tests for Susan Oliver as Vina, um, how they, they would paint her green, right? And then shoot the scenes and then they would come back color corrected because the people processing the film thought that there was a you know a mistake and they were trying to fix it <laughs> the uh <laughs> which weird. is so funny but the silicone like ever their faces are too smooth like they look like weird cartoon characters almost right and he did say that they kept on tweaking um especially osiris makeup through the season so they kind of you know i think along he's with her admitting, accent they, <laughs> they were kind of trying to f- get it right um but th- that was a big challenge for them in the season the andorians a lot of people pointed out like why do the andorians look weird because they evolved those and he just said it's you know it's just a family we haven't seen before a, a style you know that there's different yeah. kinds of andorians i'm fine i'm cool with I thought that. they looked good i thought they looked pretty good but the um the struggle that they had apparently was what to do with the antenna. He said they spent a lot of time in season one, which we never saw because there was supposed to be an Andorian doctor on the ship on discovery. Um, so they did all these tests and that they're like, should you have puppetry antenna or CGI antenna? And, and they, the solution that they've done apparently is they just have norm, like just makeup antenna. And then they, they take them off whatever the character wants to emote with their antenna. So they don't do what they did on Enterprise with Shran. His was um, puppetry, right? So they had yeah. guys with uh, moving moving the stocks around. But I wonder if, was it, because that's kind of a pain in the ass to constantly come into the scene and say, okay, we got to take the antenna off. And is that why they cut his antenna because um, they had one main Andorian for season <laughs> Noah for season three, and he, they his were cut off, and maybe it was because it's such a hassle to constantly be taking the antenna on and off and replacing them with CGI. That's why like, they didn't fix it once he got to the ship, because you know, like we kept thinking, oh, and Culver's going to fix him up yeah, <laughs> in no time. So they, but if they, so it'll be it'll be interesting. It seems like. They've come to the conclusion that doing an Andorian right, which means that their antenna needs to move in a natural way as they emote, is just a pain in the ass. <laughs> and they don't want to deal with it. So cut it off. Um, or, you know, which is why they didn't have the character in season one. Well, I, I hope they figure it out and do it because it's an interesting species. I thought that I liked what they did last season with Andorians. So I'd like to see more. And these guys are so creative. I mean, I can make fun of the way that the Orions look, but these guys are doing brilliant, amazing work. I don't want to diminish that. One thing you, you noted in one of the panels with Gersha Phillips in it, you said, you noted that she has a very, had a very special relationship with Sonequa in season two, right? Season three. What was that? Well, because Sonequa's pregnancy 
was <laughs> proceeding as it should. So I think she right. said every week she had to alter her clothes because she was growing half an inch a week. I think they said. I thought so, it was an inch a week, but it was it was substantial. It's it's a lot. And listen, I remember being pregnant, and let's I wasn't wearing my regular clothes. I had to wear other so clothes. It, in the season three finale, I think she was six months pregnant. I think she was more by the end because she said that. Yeah, I think she was more pregnant than that. I mean, they did a very good job of hiding it, much better than than Crusher's giant coat. Uh, and and uh, what was the other one they did? Who else got Bilana, a big coat? Balana did one. Balana got a big coat. I was just uh, listening to Roxanne Dawson on the Delta Flyers, and she was talking about how she they you know they spent all this time hiding her pregnancy and shooting things in this very tight way and putting her behind consoles. And then as soon as she had her baby, they wrote a storyline where Balana was pregnant, <laughs> which was weird. But yeah, so it looks like Gersha and Sonequa got very very close. Spending a lot of time together. One thing Gersha said, which is subtle, but I thought was interesting, is the the new Starfleet uniforms, which are now new new in season four. They spent a lot of time on materials and stuff. They wanted to make sure, because it's the super far future, that they don't look like they are sewn. That they look like they are printed. They wanted to make sure there's no elements of visible threads and stuff like that. On the uniforms. Here's my question to you. Is that something that you as a viewer, you think would note and notice? No, I never would. <laughs> I mean, I like the the creative thinking I like, and it's a really interesting thought. But I do think that sometimes with the costumes, there's a level of detail that just isn't that visible or noticeable to the viewer. Right. Certainly the kind of obsessive season one you know, tiny deltas on everything. Just that they weren't, they went down a rabbit hole. They spent way too much time and money on the uniforms and no one really liked them anyway. I mean, I kind of like the new uniforms. I definitely prefer them now that they've switched the colors around so that they're now yeah. the primary color with the gray stripe as opposed to gray. And a, But they did look good in the Starfleet. That's where they were designed to look best. In the in the in in the Apple Store, you know, um, Starfleet headquarters. Right. So it's still a question of how they'll look on the ship. I still think they look a little weird on the ship. Yeah, um, I mean, I haven't loved what they've done with uniforms. I love what Gersha does with the other clothes that she gets to play with. All the other outfits, I I really enjoy, and I think they look great. But I do think the uniforms have never quite gotten to where I really get excited about them. Yeah, but besides minor tweaks, I think, I mean, even if the show runs seven seasons, I, I don't think we're going to get another <laughs> Starfleet uniform. You know, this this is it. Because, you know, Michelle said, we're not doing another time jump. You know, we're, we're there. We're staying. That's it. We're <laughs> no more jumping another thousand years in the his, into the future. We'll see. Um, I think we're going to have different uniforms. In season five, you mean? I mean, if we go to seven seasons, which I think we'll do, I think there will be some new uniforms in there. I just think they can't resist. They're going to keep tweaking them and changing them. And then they'll work it into the story. Oh, the Federation, now Starfleet is bigger and it's different. It's this and it's that. They'll figure it out. That's such a huge expense, both in the time. I mean. I know, but they've, they're they always spending more money. on. Again, that's to me not not one of their better budget decisions from the get-go. But I has think yeah, but I think as shows go into later and later seasons and Netflix, you know, starts counting 
you know, every dollar being spent on the show because, you know, they don't like shows going past three seasons and they're footing part of the bill here. I just don't think them because everyone wears it. You know, it's not like you're just changing one character's outfit. I mean, it would be a huge expense to do it yet again. I agree. I, I was I was kind of shocked because they gave everyone a uniform for the finale and then they had to change them all again. I mean, exactly. That, Someone had to call CBS and said, you know what? We need to do that all again. We're going to throw away. We use those uniforms for one scene and we're throwing them all away. That couldn't have been an easy phone call. And I don't see them doing that again. Well, we'll they manipulate their budget. So they take it from somewhere else. (laughs) Indeed. That's what you do. Is you pull it from somewhere else. As a production manager used to say, we rob from Peter to pay Paul. There was one of these interviews with the head of visual effects, which I thought it there wasn't a lot of new stuff in there. But he talked about how his favorite things are the things none of us even know about. And a lot of this is like set extensions and stuff like that. Is The favorite thing he hears is when someone goes, oh, I didn't even know there was CGI in that scene. Because he's saying there's CGI in almost everything you look at. Every scene, there's something happening somewhere practically that they need to add something to. So it's not just, you know, the cool space shots and, you know, and of course that also adds up to more money. Yeah. Everything adds up to more money. Exactly. This is an expensive show, probably still the most expensive show they do. Although we haven't seen how far they're pushing it on strange new worlds. Um, And I'm curious if they will have the, they kind of have to have the same. I mean, it was born out of this show. They can't suddenly seem cheaper. You know, Picard, it doesn't look cheaper, but it, it is a bit of a cheaper show. It's still good production values, but they're not spending as much money on a lot of these things as they are on Discovery. There's fewer but sets. Discovery does like look that. great. I mean, it pays off. I think it looks fantastic yeah we should be seeing more nominations for all of these people and hopefully some wins especially in some of these categories in fact there's been some buzz i I think one person that stands a good good chance this year is someone who's also an emmy winner jeff russo and variety you know noted that he's got a good shot at a nomination and possibly a win for his work on discovery yeah i thought i thought it was for sure I would like to see just Star Trek in general in all those categories getting getting nominated and then some wins. I think that 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 there's so much incredible innovative work being done that looks fantastic on the screen. I'd like to see it rewarded. They're pushing for Frakes to be nominated uh, for be, Discovery. That would be so nice. It's not going to happen, I feel like. It probably won't, but It'd be nice. And, you know, so they've, they've picked him and they're trying to get Lower Decks nominated. I think that has a possible chance. So mm-hmm. it'll be an, it'll be an interesting Emmy season. I think we've pretty much covered Discovery as much. You know, do you have any other hopes and dreams or fears for season four? <laughs> I have many. <laughs> I don't think we have time to go into all of them today. I mean, uh, we should do, we'll probably do a whole I think podcast preview of season four. We'll go over everything we know. We've done this for some of the other shows, you know, and, you know, our 10 things we're looking forward to and 10 things we're afraid of or something yeah, like that. We've but, got some time. Well, then we've only got one other kind of newsy things uh, for, of the week, um, which we're kind of going to do more of next week. Um, 
and that is there's yet another documentary coming and we love documentaries we talk about them a lot and there was another crowdfunded one announced last week it's called 1982 the greatest geek year it's basically a documentary looking at the movies from 1982 there were a lot of them star trek 2 is going to feature prominently along with et and creep show and the thing and i mean it was you forget, like, Star Trek Two opened the same day as Poltergeist, which is another iconic movie, you know, the same year at Tron and Conan and, you know, it's just Road Warrior. It's crazy. So our, our friend Mark Altman, who literally wrote the book on Star Trek and, you know, has made the movie Free Enterprise with William Shatner, which is a love letter to Star Trek, um, and some other people are putting together this documentary and you could go crowd help them crowdfund. And Mark is going to be our guest next week talking about this. He's also working on the history channel, Star Trek documentary series, which is coming this fall. And of course he's got um, the inglorious Trexperts podcast, which is, you know, one of the best Star Trek podcasts in the world, if not the best, you know, I mean, it's a great podcast. We love our podcasts, but uh, we have to, you know, call out the good ones too. And that's a great one. Yeah. Agreed. So uh, let's wrap things up as we always do with our bits of the week. I'll start off. Um, this week was uh, the anniversary of a very special movie, Star Aww. Trek five, the final frontier. <laughs> and, um, you know, that holds a near and dear place in many people's hearts and uh it is the subject of a lot of jokes as well uh it's you know because it's star trek 5 and it's uh you know it's not a perfect movie william shatner directs it and uh they didn't give him the money he wanted and strange things happen but we got cyborg anyway my friend Lori ulster wrote a fantastic article for star trek.com called 10 fun facts about star trek 5 the final frontier this week to celebrate the anniversary and it's just worth checking out. Well, I won't spoil you. the 10 fun facts, but you know, you have one all about Cybok and it's great. And, and you were great. We did. Uh, some people may remember we did a Trek movie with Pluto did a special <laughs> live tweeting when Pluto did a marathon of Star Trek movies. And I think you were the one, it wasn't. I did Star of, Trek five. You I did, did Star, Star Trek, Trek 5. Five. And so that's what inspired me to pitch. When I saw that Star Trek, the site was looking for stuff on Star Trek 5, I thought, well, I did all this research and I already picked all the things I thought were fun. But of course, I can't resist. So then once they decided they wanted it, then I said, I'm going to go back and read everything again. So um, a lot of sources, including uh, one of Mark Altman's books and William Shatner's books. So it was fun because they wanted everything sourced. They didn't want any kind of rumor stuff. Um, and the hardest part is, is taking stuff out to make it shorter. Cause there's, there's a lot of great information about this movie. It's, it's worth checking out so that you could have a new appreciation and then do a rewatch of Star Trek five. And maybe, you know, it's, it's <laughs> worth it. It's, you know, it, it, I'll say this. It's not my least favorite Star Trek movie by far. No. No, it's not even my second least favorite Star Trek movie. So we, maybe we'll do a podcast all about what what each of us considers to be the worst Star Trek movie is some other time. But it's not Star Trek V. We, we should do that with the Shuttlepod crew. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Okay, so what's your bit of the week? 
I got mine again from Neil Shirley's Star Trekking newsletter, which amuses me every week. Um, and it's uh, probably some of you have seen it before, but it's it's bloopers and outtakes from Star Trek for the voyage home. And it's so much. First of all, it's a movie we probably all know really, really well, which makes it extra fun to watch those bloopers. Things like Nichelle Nichols saying, I'm receiving hailstorms instead of hails and all this <laughs> stuff. The beautiful thing. I love watching Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy break. And I love seeing them being very physically affectionate with each other when they lose it or they lean on each other. Their mistakes are always really fun. Um, there's this great thing where William Shatner pleads guilty for everybody and then says, oh, I plead not guilty. I've also been authorized to plead guilty. And there's this cute back and forth. So it's just it'll just give you like a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. When you watch it, it's just a couple minutes long and it's lots of fun. This week, the bits is all about the 80s. Yeah. We got 1982, the documentary. We got Star Trek V, which is 1989, right? Yep. Yep. And Star Trek IV. So yeah. We love the 80s. I'm glad something good came out of the 80s because when people say I love the 80s and start naming music, I don't like any of that stuff. Oh, so. well, let's not get it. Let's not get into that because I'm not I love, an 80s I, music I, gal. I love the 80s. Let's now spend an hour arguing over 1980s music, shall we? Yeah, we'll do I that. I will say for Star Trek 4, though, that the soundtrack is way too 80s and it does. I love the movie, but I feel like the soundtrack is a little too 80s. A little too eighties. You know, I guess it works. It it works for the time, but it somewhat dates the movie. And I'm not a huge fan of the soundtrack of Star Trek Four. All right, I think we're done. <laughs> Are we at the end? I think we've done it. Yet, so- yet again, we could we could just babble on without a guest, without an episode to talk about, without a specific subject. Even though I guess Discovery was our focus this week. We could just talk forever about anything. Right. You're getting the edited version, but this conversation was six hours long. (laughs) Yes, that's the absolute truth. (laughs) Not far off, though. So we'll be back next week. Mark Altman will be our guest. If you have any questions for him, you could post those in the article that goes up with this podcast. Along with your very useful feedback about our podcast that I would like to get. And see you then. Bye-bye.